Welcome back to another week here of uh, reading through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer here with you, uh, here for, I think this is week 20, week 20 uh, for the week of May 15th through May 21st. We're reading through Acts right now, Acts chapter 7 through chapter 11 this week. Um, I hope you're enjoying uh, reading through the Acts of the Apostles written by Luke um, in the New Testament, um, where I'm enjoying the study and what I'm learning here with you as we uh, go through this section of Scripture of God's Word. And you'll remember, uh, as we were walking through Acts now, remember it's written by Luke, um, written to a guy named Theophilus, second volume of a two-volume work. And here he is showing the expansion and the growth of the Christian church, of the New Testament church, uh, showing its worldwide um, growth. And, and it's a, it was really a phenomenon, an amazing thing to see. And so we've, uh, last week we talked about, we got through uh, chapter six, um, introduced uh, Stephen at the tail end there in chapter six. And so we saw the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem with Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. Uh, this week, we're going to begin seeing the spread of the gospel to Judea and to Samaria, and ultimately the beginnings of it to the ends of the earth. Um, uh, so uh, going through 7 through 11 and getting us set the next time we're together for the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his call to preach and spread the gospel even broader um, to the Gentiles, uh, taking this gospel uh, to them. So as we walk here through uh, Acts 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, so we've got Acts chapter 7, uh, all the way through chapter 8, verse 3, and here we're going to see Stephen's message. Remember, Stephen was arrested. Um, He's one of the first uh, deacons that is full of the Spirit, and uh, he's there speaking to before the uh, Sanhedrin, um, bearing witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. and But eventually he's martyred there, right? They're enraged, they martyr him, and there's a great persecution that follows. And we're told about a man named Saul of Tarsus, who is there um, and supporting the execution of, of Stephen. And then in chapter 8, we go away to a, a man named Philip, who goes off in, after, this, after this persecution takes place against the whole church there. Uh, Philip goes off and preaches the gospel, however, and the gospel spreads to Samaria now, as Jesus said it would, to the Samaritans and preaches the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch um, there. Then in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 31, we see uh, Saul of Tarsus again. He's still breathing threats against the church, still hostile to Christianity as ever, before eventually he encounters the Lord of glory and is taken captive and subdued by Jesus Christ, saved and turned into a vessel to proclaim the name of Christ to all the earth. Then we have uh, the latter part of chapter 9 all the way through chapter 11, verse 18. We turn our attention back to Peter. And Peter here is preaching, and he is going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, this is the the conversion of Cornelius, which is a major event in uh, the history of the Christian church. And so Peter goes and is called to proclaim the gospel to someone who is a non-Jew and who is saved without becoming a Jew. 
and the Holy Spirit falls upon him and his household um, without them needing to uh, follow any of the Mosaic um, laws like circumcision or anything like that. They are given the promise of the Holy Spirit and are saved by faith in Christ uh, without becoming Jews. And this really is a a landmark event um, that we see here. And it even stirs up a bit of controversy at the beginning of chapter 11 when Peter has to go and kind of explain himself um, to say uh, what's happening here. And so we really here see the this really now is is becoming not simply a Jewish thing or people who are associated with Judaism like the Samaritans kind of um, on the edges and you know whatever. But now we have people who are non-Jews who are now getting saved. And then uh, the last part in chapter eleven, our attention is turned to a church in Antioch, and we see what it was like there. the 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 Gentiles are becoming saved there, and also we see in Antioch here we see a Barnabas show up, and he goes and grabs a guy, grabs that Saul of Tarsus, and brings him to Antioch there uh, for ministry. So that's kind of what we're going to be walking through this week, um, through through this portion of the book of Acts. So what can we learn uh, from this section from Luke chapter, or not Luke, Acts chapter 7, uh, verse uh, 11? Well, I want to bring up a couple of guys that I'm going to use to kind of help pro- provoke our thoughts and to prompt our thinking a bit. Um, again, William Arnault. Uh, was a Scottish minister. We talked about him last week. Um, he wrote that book called The Church in the House, going through Acts. Um, so I'm going to read some stuff from him. But also another new guy named Horatius Bonar. Horatius Bonar. He was uh, born in 1808, lived till 1889. He was a Scottish minister and also wrote some hymns. Um, but he has a, a work that, that is called Light and Truth, Bible Thoughts and Themes. And so he has some thoughts uh, going through the book of Acts on various passages, and it's very helpful. Again, both these men were great preachers of the gospel. So as we go through Acts, we're actually going to be learning from the Scots, uh, from the Scottish ministers here, uh, William Arnaud and Horatius Bonar, who, who lived at the same time, um, and very well, I'm assuming, may have, may have known each other. Um, and ministered, uh, um, you know, in the same, uh, I think in the same church even, the Free Church of Scotland. So let's walk through here and let's see what we can learn um, in this passage, uh, in this section of Scripture. And the thing I want to focus our attention on is Stephen right away. So we're brought up right away in Acts chapter 7 to Stephen's testimony, his uh, bearing witness before the Sanhedrin, and Stephen here walks through the Old Testament scriptures. You know, he begins with Abraham and walks through Moses and all the the experiences of the people of God uh, through the Old Testament scriptures. Because remember, um, he's being accused of, uh, in verse 14 of chapter 6, we're told um, that, uh, I guess you go to verse 13, um, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. This was the accusation right against him. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, this temple, right? And will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so these were the things they were saying. He's speaking blasphemous words against Moses. He's, he's opposing the Old Testament and all of our religion. And actually, Stephen here is going to go through the Old Testament scriptures and the stories and actually show that the Old Testament message actually all along shows that the people of God, the Jewish nation, consistently 
rejected the, peop- the, the messengers and the prophets that God had sent to them. Um, and eventually in verse 51 of chapter 7, he'll end by saying, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So what he's actually saying here is, everything that you guys are doing right now in opposing Christ and opposing all of his followers is consistent exactly with what your fathers did in the Old Testament, and you're doing it again right now. So here's Stephen, a Jew, preaching to other Jews and saying that this is consistent with what your fathers did, and you're doing the same thing now. And of course, this really stirs them up quite a bit. They're very angry, and this will eventually lead to uh, Stephen's um, execution and uh, death whenever he says he looks into heaven and he sees Christ standing Uh, there for him. So let's think a little bit here about the testimony of Stephen. And also as we go into the, uh, the execution of it, and we see a man, Saul of Tarsus, who is listed here at the very beginning of chapter eight, um, who's uh, listed as being in here um, at this um, execution uh, of Stephen. Uh, He's, he's mentioned uh, of being there, and also in verse 58 of chapter 7, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So let's read a little bit about here. This is from William Arno. He says this, It is in the spirit of a devout believer that Stephen traces the course of Hebrew history. He touches tenderly and with devout reverence all the great events in God's dealing with Israel. His speech in this aspect must have gone far to refute the accusations that were brought against him. This is not a reviler of the temple and the law. This is not a renegade Jew who abjures the authority of Moses. It was not by his historical discourse that Stephen offended his judges. It was rather by his unsparing application of the word to their consciences. His elegant apologetic essay would have pleased his judges as the story of the ewe lamb pleased the guilty king. It was his concluding onslaught. Thou art the man that enraged the persecutors and sealed the doom of the intrepid witness. So what he's saying here about the overall message of Stephen is that it just with, as with David, remember David, whenever Nathaniel, uh, not Nathaniel, Nathan comes and gives him the story about whenever he's sinned after Bathsheba, right? He's sinned with Bathsheba, killed Uriah. And Nathan comes and tells him a story about a man with the lamb, right? You know, the whole story. And David agrees with the illustration and then all of a sudden it's brought home but you're the man who did this in the story and similarly that's what um Stephen is doing here he's telling them a story and and so far they couldn't they would have had to say well yeah that's right that's exactly what the old testament says that's exactly what happened but then all of a sudden Stephen turns the tables and says you're doing exactly what they did and so that, that, that stings, you are the man. And that really brought about that conviction and that accusation from Stephen to them uh, really led them to be full of rage and to kill Stephen. Uh, Arno continues, the executioners engaged and paid and held in readiness to do the Lord, to do the work quickly, lest the sentence lacking the due authority might be recalled, laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. 
Such is the first introduction of this man to the readers of the Bible. The apostle of the Gentiles steps upon the stage, the acknowledged head of a ruffian band, in the very act of shedding the first martyr's blood. What hath God wrought? How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out. When he had said this, he fell asleep, but Saul was consenting unto his death. We should not overlook the connection and the contrast, which the division of the chapters here rather tends to obscure. These two men met for one day, and they went on their several paths. The one right on to the joy of the Lord, the other to the work of wasting the church. The intimation at the beginning of chapter 8 means that Saul approved of the policy adopted in taking Stephen off. It would be an error to impute to him any inhuman cruelty. Saul was never a man of low tastes and brutal passions. From early years, he was a man of most acute intellect, earnest opinions, and lofty aims. At this time, his belief was that Stephen's doctrines were subversive of the true religion, and that the best way of checking a heresy was to put the heretics to death. These principles did not die out with the conversion of Saul. They survived and deluged Europe with blood down to a very recent period. It is only now in our own generation that religious toleration has been established. The position of Saul at the death of Stephen was due not to natural cruelty, but to a perverted judgment. He thought he did God's service by slaying the disciples of Christ. His own description is clear and true. I verily thought I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did. He held the opinion that it was just and right to take Stephen off as a subverter of the law. I have often tried to convince, conceive the scene at the next meeting of these two men, when Saul also became a martyr, and joined the general assembly in church of the firstborn. When they met in the presence of the Lord, there would be no upbraiding on the one side and no shame on the other. Saul's guilt was indeed very great. The young Pharisee, who, had, who conducted the case against Stephen with skill and vigor, and plunged into another as soon as the dark deed was done, that young Pharisee was a chief sinner. But the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleansed him from all sin. Stephen would be so much occupied remembering his own guilt and praising the grace that had blotted it out, that he would have had no time and no inclination to cast up the sins of other men. We have not the means of determining whether Stephen or Saul owed most to the Lord. By looking on the surface of the sea, we cannot tell what place is deepest, but we know that all places, alike the deepest and the shallowest, are filled, and all present one level surface to the sky. In like manner, as far as we can perceive, all the forgiven are alike. It is only he who bore their sins who can distinguish the aggravations of every case. Certain it is that the first martyr and the man who kept the clothes of the executioners at his death are now at peace. They are one in Christ. So here we, we read about Saul and Stephen, right? At the very here with Stephen's life. And you can imagine the words of Stephen stinging in the conscience of, of Saul of Tarsus. Whenever he says there, you have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Well, that eventually will become the thing that's driving Paul. Uh, he eventually, really, that, be, that sounds Pauline, doesn't it? Whenever Paul says, uh, the law is that which convicts us and shows us that we need God's grace because we cannot keep the law. Well, after, after this great persecution, 
the gospel is spread, right? They, these, these, uh, uh, the, the churches is a great persecution arises against the church in Jerusalem and they're spread out. And we see Philip, he goes and preaches and proclaims Christ in Samaria. Um, he's baptizing these people. We see the instance with uh, Simon, the magician. And we also see the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch who spreads the gospel, even to this man who has, uh, gone and who is baptized, um, whenever he believes in, in the name of Christ. Christ. And so we see the spreading of the gospel in Acts chapter 8 before eventually we get in chapter 9 to the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And here I've got some sections again from William Arnault uh, talking to us uh, again about the importance of the conversion of Saul. He has this to say, and Saul, yet breathing out threatenings, the instigator and manager of the first martyrdom has not yet changed. He still breathes out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of Jesus, but will not do so much longer now. This part of his course is near an end. This is the last journey he will undertake as the waster of the church. The days of his rebellion are numbered. The hour of his conversion is on the wing. He is still the persecutor, but a little while and he will persecute no more. After this day, all his days, he will be persecuted until, like the rest of the martyrs, he is sent up in a fiery chariot to join the company of the crowned saints. And that's a powerful image as you open up chapter 9 and Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's still going about doing the, the work of the forces of darkness. Here is an enemy to Jesus Christ, an enemy to his gospel, an enemy to his people. And yet his days are numbered in doing this. His days are numbered in persecuting the church. And in fact, he one day will become the persecuted uh, by others. Arnaud continues, From a comparison of this narrative with the accounts of the same event given subsequently by Paul in his public apologies, it results that while his companions heard a voice, Saul only distinguished the articulate speech of a person. And that while they all fell to the earth at the first appearance of the light, the rest of the company soon rose to their feet again, while Saul continued prostrate to hear the word of the Lord. All the company beheld the light with which the risen Jesus that day clothed himself as with a garment. But Saul alone saw the divine person who wore that robe of glory. All heard a sound, but he alone felt the word as a two-edged sword penetrating his joints and marrow. Similar distinctions occur in our day. One is taken and another left. A thousand may hear the word of the kingdom, and the kingdom come in power to only a single soul. Here the Lord takes unto himself his mighty power and reigns. He subdues and leads captive the greatest enemy of his throne. He makes openly a show of Jewish unbelief in the person of its chosen champion, and uses the captive then as an instrument to promote his own design. The Lord has need of human energy and genius in its highest measure, of a moral power that sweeps all lighter things before it in whatever direction it may move, like a river in food. Or maybe that should be in flood. That may be a typo, like a river in flood. Of Hebrew lore and Greek culture blended together in one capacious mind. Of all these, the Lord had need for the work of the kingdom. And sovereignly, he seized the vessel which contained them in all in its fullest measure, that he might employ it as he employed the ancient prophet, to root out and to pull down, and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Jeremiah 1.10 
So what Arno is pointing out here is as, as Paul comes here, um, the, the Lord here appears to Saul. You remember the light that shines and, and Saul of Tarsus is the only one who sees Jesus. The rest of them only see a light um, and hear a voice. But Saul alone sees the risen Christ. And it's because here, he says here, the Lord has come to, to, um, to conquer and to subdue and lead captive Saul. It's interesting, Saul later on will talk about him. Paul, Paul, the apostle Paul will talk about himself often as a slave of Jesus Christ. And he, uh, he calls himself that often a servant, a slave of Jesus. And you can think that here, uh, Saul has been working and is a soldier fighting for the enemy. And here the Lord Jesus comes and conquers Saul and takes him captive as his own slave now. And Saul now willingly, known later as Paul, becomes a willing servant and slave of the Lord of glory to proclaim his gospel to the ends of the earth. And that's all of us. We once were, were, were enemies hostile to God. That's what Paul will say later on, right? We're hostile in mind. If anyone was hostile in mind, it was the apostle Paul. He's hostile to Jesus Christ and to his people. And yet the Lord takes him captive, turns him around, makes him his own because he bought him with a price and is now going to use Saul of Tarsus to, as, a, as a vessel to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Arnaud continues, it was near Damascus. It was at midday. There was a considerable company. Great publicity was given to the transaction. Transaction. Every circumstance is a separate witness to the truth of the narrative, but the best evidence of the fact is the mighty effect that followed. By the conversion of Paul, the course of human history has been diverted. The extant result bears witness to, of the efficient cause. A circumfused light appeared to all the company. To Saul alone, the glorified Redeemer articulately appeared. All heard a voice. Saul alone heard him, the manifested man, speaking to himself. The voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul was immediately and fully aware that he had a person to deal with. Whether in the first moment of his terror, all that Stephen had preached of Jesus living and reigning flashed into his memory, we do not know. But it is probable that the thought of Jesus whom Stephen saw at his dying moment was on Saul's mind when he put his first question, Who art thou, Lord? Jesus condescends to answer him, for he knew that the persecutor was in earnest now. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. In this expression, all the reproof and consolation contained in the first word of the Lord is repeated and redoubled. Think about that, by the way. That's a, that's a beautiful parallel. Remember Stephen at the very end says, I see Jesus sitting, standing. And that's the part that everyone, they, they get together, they rage and they stone Stephen. And now all of this stuff maybe is flowing back into Saul of Tarsus's mind and see he, he had made fun of that. He had thought that that was ridiculous and was the opposite and, the, and, and was going to destroy his religion. But now he's confronted with the Lord of glory and he says, who are you, Lord? And, and he's broken and it's like, oh my goodness, the Jesus that I opposed and who I have been opposing, what's he going to do to me now? And he appears and he says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And there's a 
comfort for us as believers because Jesus regards the sufferings done to us as if they had been done to him. But on the other hand, a powerful terror to, to Saul of Tarsus here at this moment, you're persecuting me, Saul. And Saul's maybe wondering, what's going to happen to me now? This, this Jesus that I've been persecuting, he's, he's come after me now. Well, he had come after Saul of Tarsus, but it was not in order to destroy Saul, but to save him. Uh, here again, Arnaud continues here. He says, Saul of Tarsus, called to be an apostle, is a conspicuous example of divine sovereignty. He did not first choose Christ, but Christ chose him. He was in the way of evil when the Lord met him with subduing, forgiving, renewing mercy. When human pride is at last silenced by the sense of redeeming love, it is sweet to feel and own that Jesus is at once the author and the finisher of our faith, the beginning of the creation of God within renewed human hearts on earth, and the ending thereof when the spirits of the just are made perfect in his presence. Christ is first and last, all in all. I recognize God's command to me that I should turn and live. I recognize my duty to close with this offer. I recognize the justice of my condemnation if I refuse to comply. God bids me believe and live. I ought to obey, but if I obey and be saved like Paul, like him I shall say and sing as the history of my redemption. When I was wandering helpless further and further towards death, the good shepherd followed and found me, turned me round, and bore me back to his fold. A great reminder of what salvation really is. None of us are seeking the Lord. That's what the Psalms say, and Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 3. No one seeks after God. No one is after him, but God is after men. And here he says he did not first choose Christ, but Christ chose him. And for all of us in our salvation, ultimately, that is what happens. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you. First uh, John chapter 3, and this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So here we see God reaching down, plucking a brand from the fire of his own sovereign will, saving men. It is God who saves. We simply receive it. So that is the conversion of the Saul of Tarsus. Of Saul of Tarsus. And we'll see him, of course, later on, especially in the latter half of the book of Acts. But now our attention is turned back after Saul's conversion and such is we are now turned to Peter's ministry. He performs some, some healings of Aeneas and of Dorcas before eventually he is called by God to go and preach to Cornelius. And he goes and does this. And William Arnaud has this wonderful section here. Uh, a light to lighten the Gentiles, uh, talking about the spread of the gospel to uh, the Gentiles. He says this, Already Christ had come, the glory of his own people Israel, and now he must be set forth as a light also to the Gentiles. The second half of the promise must be fulfilled as well as the first. Shiloh has come to hold the scepter in Judah, but to him must the gathering of the peoples also be. He's referencing, I believe that would be Genesis 49. It is not enough that the law of the new kingdom should be established in Zion. The word of the kingdom must go forth from Jerusalem. The king hath prepared his sacrifice. He had bidden his guests. All things are now ready. The servants must now go 
go out and the, out, the outcasts come in. North, give up. South, keep not back. Bring my sons from far and my daughters from the ends of the earth. The outflow of the gospel upon the Gentile world is a great turning point in the history of the primitive church. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel was not at first known to the followers of Jesus. It was part of the mystery of godliness specially revealed to the apostles after the ascension of Christ. Other sheep I have, said the master, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. John ten sixteen. This chapter narrates the accomplishment of the promise. Here we learn how the door was opened, or rather how the middle wall of partition was broken down, so that henceforth there should be for the church neither Jew nor Greek. Although individuals here and there had already been admitted into the fellowship of the church, it needed yet a revelation to show the believing Jews that the way into the gospel was open and free to the nations as to themselves. Those who had entered hitherto entered first into the Jewish communion and thence were introduced into the Christian church. Now it is made evident that the Gentiles may come direct to Christ without passing through Judaism on their way. God's own hand had hung up the separating veil to serve important purposes for a time, but now, when it has fulfilled its purpose, his own hand will rend it. Peter and Cornelius are chosen as the two points at which the two bodies shall come into contact, so that they may be joined in one. Cornelius was a favorite man from among the noblest families of Rome. He was an officer of the Italian band, the bodyguard of the governor was composed of native Italians. Levies raised in the provinces were not trusted near the ruler's person. This circumstance makes it sure that Cornelius was a Gentile. He belongs to the Roman Empire, the representative at that day of the world's power. He was a devout man. Whether he was a proselyte of the gate cannot be certainly ascertained, but at all events, he was not further initiated into Judaism. He worshipped God, but did not conform to the Jewish ceremonial. He worshipped God with all his house. This is a feature in family life that is always mentioned in the scriptures with honor. Jesus is pleased when parents bring the little ones and place them in his arms. Grace not only flows down like water, so that from the head of the house it reaches the youngest. It also, by a cognate law, rises up like vapor, so that it may find its way from a godly child to a worldly father. Parents, bring your house to the church and bring the church to your house. That's a great, great, great quick line, isn't it? He continues here. The vision of Peter marked a great crisis of the church. Remember Peter's vision in chapter 10. He sees, uh, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He's talk, Jesus is, God is trying to teach Peter there about the fact that all of the old distinctions, the, those ceremonial distinctions, circumcised, uncircumcised, clean, unclean, all those things, those no longer apply. So he says here, the vision of Peter marked a great crisis of the church. The apostles must have experienced at this time much difficulty in reconciling the Lord's command, go ye into all the world, with their adherence to the Mosaic ordinances, which they still considered binding. On the general principle that you may discover in the answer sent to prayer what the suppliant pleaded for, we have good ground to assume that Peter, on the housetop that day, cried to the Lord, O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them guide me on this very thing. The vision that followed 
was the opening of the gates that the kingdom long pent up in Israel might flow out upon the world. It is the bursting of the chrysalis in which the life has been preserved indeed, but confined the life that now issues forth is the same. And yet it is so much more glorious that to observers, the church of the new Testament seems a new creature. That's really a beautiful image, isn't it? Um, you think about a butterfly, the, the caterpillar, the life of the caterpillar was bound within the cocoon, right? Or whatever they call that, the chrysalis or something. And you can imagine that, right? It's the same life in a sense. And that's what it was in the Old Testament. It was, it was there, it was safe, and it was pent up within there. But now in the New Testament church, it bursts forth. It's no longer confined to what it was in the Old Testament. And it bursts forth as a beautiful butterfly. And similarly, the church of the New Testament is the same as the church that was within the cocoon, within, within the chrysalis. But now that it bursts forth, it has a new glory and seems to be almost a new creature. So the church of the Old Testament and the New Testament are not two different churches. They're the same church, but one was under age and one is now a grown adult. One was, 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 uh, was in development and pent up and confined, but now it's unconfined and almost seems to be a new creature. Such a wonderful image. But he says here, by what means shall Cornelius be saved? By words. He shall tell thee words whereby thou shalt be saved. Strange. When the loss is so deep and real, will words bring deliverance? Words. Articulated air. He closes there. So he's going to bring words to Cornelius to preach. And this is some of the words. This is from Horatius Bonar now. I want to talk a couple of points about the preaching of Peter to Cornelius and what he talks about. The first thing that, you know, he he talks about Jesus, tells him, you know, there's no distinction um, anymore. But he points out here in Acts 10, 36 and says this, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So some of the words that he preached were about peace to the far off and the near. And this is from Horatius Bonar, not William Arnott, Horatius Bonar here on this part. He says this, it is of peace that we are now to speak, that which the Holy Ghost calls peace, that which is the theme of the Bible from first to last, that which is the need of earth, that which is the possession of heaven. Learn then what peace is, what it is not, where it comes from, how we get it and what it does for us. First of all, what it is. It means something, it means sometimes friendship or reconciliation, and sometimes the state of soul resulting from these. It is the quieting of the soul after any excitement or vexation or trouble of context, conscience. In our text, it specially means reconciliation with God, the removal of his anger, and the renewal of broken friendship. Isaiah 12, 1 and 2. Peace here is equivalent to peace with God, though it may include as the consequence of this peace of soul, the peace of God. It is the calming of the storm by the stilling of the raging winds. It is the soul's calm, a divine and heavenly calm from God himself. O man of earth, is this peace yours? But secondly, what it is not, this peace, it is not mere indifference, The frozen lake is calm, but that is not the calm we desire. The sea on the lee side of some island cliff is calm, but that is simply because the wind is blowing in a particular way. 
It is not the security of self-righteousness. That is unreal peace, a hollow security. It is not the peace of prosperity or pleasure or earthly ease. There is the world's peace and the devil's peace and the peace of a seared conscience. But these are not what God calls peace. It is not anything that arises from forgetting God or from imagining him to be such an one as ourselves or from losing sight of sin or obliterating the law or denying the cross. Bible peace is something different from all these. Thirdly, where it comes from. It does not come from self or sin or the flesh or the world. Nor does it come from the law or our own goodness or our prayers or religiousness. It comes directly and solely from Jesus Christ, from himself and from his cross, from him as Jesus, from him as the Christ. In him we have the love of God and the righteousness of God. And in the knowledge of these two, there is peace for the sinner. All that can be comprehended in that word peace is contained in him and comes from him. He is the Prince of Peace, the Way of Peace, the Fountain and the River of Peace. He is our peace. He has made peace through the blood of his cross. That which makes peace and which gives peace has been finished and perfected in him upon the cross. Peace is not a thing to be made by us. It was made by him. He finished the reconciling work, the peacemaking work, 1,800 years ago. We would say today, 2,000 years ago. It is done. The foundation has been laid in Zion. The well of peace was then filled and opened. Be ye reconciled is our message now. And this message of peace is to all. For he who is our peace is Lord of all. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Who is there among the troubled sons of Adam that can say, There is no ground and no message of peace for me. Your need of it is your want for receiving it. And the cry to you is, whosoever will. Fourthly, how do we get it? Our text says it is preached to us, or more exactly, the good news of it are brought to us. The pacifying, conscience-purging work is done, and God has sent his account of it. The Holy Ghost has put on record his testimony concerning it for our sakes. God has not done a work and then hidden it, leaving it to us to find it out. He has lifted up his voice. He has sent abroad his messengers, commanding them to preach the gospel to every creature. That is, to say to every creature that it is for him. We believe this divine record, this testimony of the Holy Ghost, and the peace contained in him who is testified of flows into us. He that hath the Son hath life, hath peace. We believe and are at peace. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. It is not first faith and then reflection upon our own faith that gives peace. That would be extracting peace from our own faith, not from the finished work of Golgotha. That would be believing in our own faith, not in Jesus. Our simple reception of the testimony of the Holy Ghost does for us all we need. Fifthly, what it does for us, one, it purifies. No peace, no purity. It is not first purity, then peace, but first peace, then purity. Two, it liberates. Being filled with peace, we are free. The possession of this peace is the liberty of the soul. Without peace, we are in bondage and darkness. Three, it satisfies. It fills the soul. It takes away weariness and emptiness. Four, it animates. 
Till peace takes possession of us, we are sluggish in the cause of God. Peace makes us zealous, brave, self-denied, willing to spend and be spent, to do and suffer. It makes our faces shine. It turns our eye onward to the Lord's appearing. So long as we are not in peace, we are afraid of his coming. When peace fills us, we desire it. We say, come, Lord Jesus. What is there that this peace cannot do for us? That's a great section, isn't it, about the peace of God? And I particularly liked what he pointed out there because this is something that Pastor Tim recently has preached about. We don't have faith in our faith. And similarly, he says, what we believe in is the record that God has told us that God has sent his son into the world to die for the sins of all who will believe, and we believe that record. We receive it, and we place our trust in the finished work of Golgotha. That's such a good reminder. Now, there's another aspect to this main message that Horatius Boner talks about, and it's from Acts chapter 10, verse 43, where he says here, he says that to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so Horatius Bonar has this to say now about this part. These are continuing those words that were preached to Cornelius. He says this, The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, said the angel to John, Revelation 19.10. That is, the burden of all prophecy is Jesus. He is the first and the last of the prophetic word. So here, Peter says, To him give all the prophets witness, or to this man is it, it is that all time prophets bear witness. And who is this man? The previous verses are the answer. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. He was man anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power. He went about doing good. He healed all who were oppressed of the devil. God was with him. He was slain and hanged on a tree. He was raised up the third day. He was shown openly to chosen witnesses. He was to be preached not only as Savior, but as judge of the living and the dead. This is the man. Of this man, not only all the apostles and disciples have spoken, but all the prophets of old. Their testimony finds its fulfillment in him. Their words converge on him. Their testimony is that of the Holy Ghost. It was he who drew the marvelous picture of Messiah in the Old Testament, in which we find the exact and perfect portrait of the man Christ Jesus. This portrait was not sketched at once, but in parts and fragments, in different ages. It was outlined in paradise, and afterwards filled in by holy men, who, without concert with each other, did their various parts as taught by the Holy Ghost. This man is then the man of prophecy, the man of the Bible, the man of the ages. It is he of whom all the prophets have spoken, and to whom the heathen traditions dimly point. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Let us hear the prophetic and the apostolic testimony to him as given here. Let us learn what there is in him for us. 1. There is remission of sins. It is this that is man's first need. He is condemned under wrath. The sentence has gone out against him. His iniquities have come between him and God, between him and peace, between him and heaven. Unpardoned sin is a burden too heavy to be borne. Not sin merely as a disease or misfortune, but sin is a legal and judicial thing, a thing which inexorable law must deal with, a thing which the righteous judge has condemned and must condemn. Of this sin... There is remission, and God sends man remission as the thing first, first thing needed. 
that with which the rectification of all his spiritual disorders must begin, that which is absolutely needful in all his dealings with God and in all his hopes of the kingdom. Forgiveness. This is God's first message to man. Forgiveness free and ample, sure and immediate, conscious and happy, eternal and irreversible. Forgiveness without reserve, forgiveness to the chief of sinners, forgiveness of all sins. In this forgiveness is, of course, wrapped up peace with God, peace of conscience, the answer of a good conscience toward God, the removal of the heavy burden that weighed the sinner down, of the dark cloud that overshadows all his life. O man, hast thou found remission? Hast thou tasted forgiveness? Such a forgiveness as God only can give? He who is the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and slow to wrath, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. He who says when forgiving Israel, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will plant them in this land assuredly with my whole heart and with my whole soul. Jeremiah thirty-two forty-one. He who forgiveth all our iniquities and removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, 3 and 12. He with whom there is forgiveness that he may be feared. He who through the lips of his only begotten son said once to a sinning woman on earth, her sins which are many are forgiven. O man, if thou hast not found this forgiveness, rest not till thou hast. For what is life without it? And if thou art still uncertain about it, rest not till thou hast made it a certainty. For uncertainty on such a point as this is bondage and darkness and sorrow. Secondly, there is remission of sins through his name. His name means that which he is revealed and declared to be, that by which he is distinguished from all others, that which interprets and proclaims his true character. It is not merely his names, through the, though these are all expressive of his grace and fullness, but his name, his whole revealed character as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Forgiveness comes to the sinner through that which Jesus is declared to be and to have done. And we, in going to God for pardon, have respect simply to that which is in him, not to any one thing in us as qualifying us for pardon. As unforgiven, we go to him for forgiveness. As condemned, we go to him for no condemnation. And all through his name, that love, that name of love and power and blessing, in naming which before the Father, we get all we need. Thirdly, there is remission of sins. This remission of sins comes to us by believing. Out of his name, we extract the pardon simply by believing what God has told us about that name. He that believeth is not condemned. In believing, we take the, the remission which God has deposited for us in his Son. And being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Believe and be forgiven is God's message to us. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Not working, or feeling, or striving, but believing brings us pardon. We consent to do nothing, and be nothing in the matter of pardon, but to let God do it all. For faith is no effort. The effort to act faith, as some speak, shows that we neither know what faith is, nor what we are to believe. Fourthly, this remission of sins is for any who will take it. Here we have the well-known whosoever, assuring that to this proffer of pardon, there is no limit and no exception. 
It is wide as sin. It is wide as the name of sinner. It is wide as the free love of God, that no man is pardoned till he believes, as the declaration of Scripture, that every man is pardoned who believes is no, no less so, but that to every man to whom God sends the gospel, he sends it with it, and in it the offer of forgiveness is as certainly the truth of God. He sends his word abroad, and in that word is Christ, and in that Christ is pardon, so that to the condemned and ruined ones of earth he presents a simple word and a full Christ and a free pardon. Poor child of earth, on whom condemnation rests, take the proffered pardon at his hand, take it as, a, as thou art, take it at once, take it and rejoice in deliverance from the wrath to come. Whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. It is not work and be saved or feel and be saved. It is believe and be saved. That's the end of that one. So those are the words that were preached to Cornelius. That is the gospel message that we preach. And really, I love that because it it, it reminds me, I hope it maybe reminds you of the simplicity of the gospel message. Just believe it. Trust him. He's done it all. Take it. It's been deposited for us in Jesus. Yeah, good to hear. Lastly, I want to talk to you real quick about primitive Christianity. This is from William Arnaud, because at the very end of chapter 11, we have a section here talking to us about the church in Antioch. They were scattered. These people there were scattered, and they go to Antioch, and the Word of God is growing here in this uh, interesting city. So now our attention has moved from Jerusalem to Antioch, and eventually it'll be from Antioch that these missionaries that Paul will go with Barnabas and they will go out and take the gospel to the Gentiles. So our attention is now turned to this church now in Antioch. And uh, William Arnaud has a section here about the uh, primitive uh, Christianity there. And he says this, three things appear at this point in the history, three things connected like links in a chain. One, the ministry of men, two, the hand of the Lord, and three, the fruit that followed. First of all, the ministry of men. Some disciples belonging to Cyprus and Cyrene, scattered by the persecution, traveled as far as Antioch and addressed themselves to the Gentiles of the eastern capital, preaching the Lord Jesus. The missionaries are not named. They kept back their own names and put forward that of their Lord. They have left no record of themselves on earth, but they have as their record on high a great multitude brought by their ministry to the Savior. The persecution that culminated in the martyrdom of Stephen was intended by the adversary to crush the infant church, but it became the blast which spread the living seed over all the regions of the East. The theme of these primitive preachers was the Lord Jesus. The Christianity of the apostolic age is distinguished by this, that it everywhere presents a personal savior to a disciple's faith. When the soul of doctrine is incarnate in a person, we can comprehend and apprehend it. When that person is recognized to be the Lord Jesus, God with us, faith looks to him and lives. This is primitive preaching. It is to tell the story of Jesus and tell it until hearts of stone give way and flow down like water. So that's the ministry of men, and that's what they preached. And you see that in the early church, in the primitive Christianity, is that God was using the service of men to preach the gospel message and of Christians to share the gospel message to others. 
Secondly, we see the hand of the Lord was with them. Arnaud writes this, the instrument is all human, but the power is all divine. We learn here with great simplicity and clearness these two things. One, that in conversion the hand of the Lord operates, but two, that it operates through the ministry of men. In this work, men can do nothing without God, but in this work, God will do nothing without men. How shall they hear without a preacher, and how shall they preach except they be sent? Thirdly, the result. The result was a great number believed and turned to the Lord. The two acts, believing and turning to the Lord, stand here in an interesting relation to each other. In some cases, these two expressions may have substantially the same meaning, but here, where they occur in company, the believing must be the root and the turning the fruit which it bears. The root of the tree lies out of sight. The manner in which it lives and operates is in a great measure concealed, but the fruit can be both seen and tasted. By the fruits we know the tree. To believe is the secret act of the soul. To turn to the Lord is the visible course of a disciple's life. The fact that the first act of these disciples after they believed was a turning shows clearly that before the gospel reached them, they were walking in the way of sin and death. When through the blood of the cross, a reconciliation takes place, the life course is changed. The new creature in Christ now abandons all that he has most fondly loved before. He casts away his idols and worships the living God. The works of the flesh are now are abjured, and the works of the Spirit appear. So that's what we see. This gospel bears fruit in repentance and in a transformed life of turning from sin back to God in righteousness. So we've seen now the, the progression from Stephen through the conversion of Saul, the gospel continuing to spread despite persecution, the Lord taking for himself Saul of Tarsus to become his own. We see the progression of the gospel to Gentiles through Peter now. Jesus Christ continues to save all sorts of people, and we see this gospel message is free for all who will receive it and believe it. And now, in Acts chapter 11, we see the base now, Antioch, where God is now continuing to save souls. And it's from here that God will do, that the Lord Jesus will spread and launch the next phase of the spread of the gospel uh, beyond Antioch and into, uh, you know, all of, you know, into Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi and all over the place, eventually going to Rome. That is the story of Acts, the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ in spreading his gospel and using all of the the adversaries and everything he can throw at him to spread the gospel farther so that all will hear and that many will believe in his name. Well, thank you so much for listening to this. I hope it's been encouraging to you. Keep reading, and we'll be back next week as we begin Acts chapter 12. Take care. God bless.